You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 222 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. 222. That is a very nice round number. Numerologically, it comes to 6. 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 6. The 6 is uh, full of sympathy and uh, the 6 has a sense of justice and is well developed. Out of the nine numbers, one to nine, the six is actually the most stable. Sound good, so I hope we have a stable episode, at least numerologically. In this episode, we are going to be talking about shamanism and ayahuasca. And in my opinion, I think we cover areas we haven't really covered before. My guest is Hamilton Souther. Hamilton is a visionary leader, speaker and renowned master shaman. He is also an international advocate for the sustainable use of medicinal plants as a tool for healing and life improvement. So uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Hamilton Souther, and I'm trained as an Amazonian ayahuasca shaman. And I started my training in 2002. And over the years, I started an ayahuasca center called Blue Morpho. And at Blue Morpho Tours, we host retreats. And we actually have a retreat starting today. Uh, it's We've just given our intro talks and uh, getting ready for our first ceremonies. So how did you end up in, in the, the Amazon in Peru in the first place? Well, when I was in my early 20s, I started to have a spiritual awakening. And during that process, I received very clear understandings that I was going to go to Peru and I was going to meet shamans and find the right shamans to work with and ultimately apprentice. And that then through apprenticeship, uh, I would go through a traditional process of transformation. And so it was from those visions themselves that I ended up uh, coming to the Amazon and looking for that apprenticeship, mostly wanting to see if it were actually real, the visions that I was having and the experiences that I was having. You know, I had a lot of doubt at first, um, but ultimately that doubt was pushed aside to the fact that there was lots of confirmation for the experience I was having and ultimately did find my apprenticeship. Have you developed your own medicine songs or your own Icaros? Yeah, over the years you learn Icaros. You know, you first learn the Icaros from uh, the plants themselves. And so you do processes in terms of ceremonies, the ayahuasca ceremonies. And you also engage in other processes that down here are called dieta or the diet of the other plants or medicinal trees of the forest. And so the local healers that I worked with, which are Don Julio Jarena Pinedo and Alberto Torres Davila, both master shamans, considered really some of the greatest healers in the area of the forest, uh, had me go through those processes first to be connected to their own Icaros and then to receive my own through the practices of the plant spirit medicine. How come every Icaro is, uh, they're all different, but they all have the same kind of style I've never heard an Icaro that's completely detached from that 
uh, style of singing or even the style of melodies? Do you th- do you think it's just because that's how those plants make music, or is it just a cultural thing? I think there's both. You know, the plants have their own music. That's clear, and they have a style associated with them. Um, but the way I learned, you know, the healers told me that we all sing similar ikaros, but not the same. And the field of that ability to learn ikaros and the number of ikaros was considered unlimited. And so uh, throughout my practice, I learned very traditional ikaros that follow that same nature of melody. And I also think that you're influenced by the tradition that you work with or the lineage that you work with and their own linguistics and their understanding of the chants and the purposes of those sounds. But then there's also room for completely different and very varied sounds that can also be a form of Ikaro. But it's also important to understand that the Ikaro has very specific purpose. It's not just a random or generalized chant. And so in ceremony, the melodic qualities and the rhythmic qualities of them is part of what's carrying the data or information necessary to impact the ceremony as intended by the shaman. So the shaman is utilizing the ikra as a form of linguistics and a form of communication. And so I think there's tremendous similarities from the culture, from the plants, and also from the purposes that you find in ceremony. In the West now, with the popularity of ayahuasca, there are many groups that are making their own version of ayahuasca. It's not exactly the same ingredients and the Usually one of the motives is they're trying to avoid the effect of having to vomit. And I always try to argue with these people online that maybe the vomit is... uh, Because I always viewed it as part of it. I mean, if you take away that bit, then it's not really ayahuasca in my experience. Of course, you can purge in other ways as well. But it's the vomit that some of these Westerners who's never gone down to the Amazon, they're trying to avoid... What do you have to say about all that? I think like you said, there's lots of kinds of purging, but the physicality of purging is part and parcel of the Amazonian practices. And I think it's a very Western concept to break the plant down into its individualized chemical components and then try to recreate that utilizing other plants. And so simply in the Amazon, they just wouldn't call that ayahuasca. They would call it by some other name. They would give it you know, another category in its own right. And then they would say ayahuasca medicine or ayahuasca tea is made up of these plants. And they would just tell you the names of those plants in a local dialect, whether it be the idea of ayahuasca and the scientific name is obviously different or chacruna, et cetera. And to me personally, uh, I think what's most important in terms of ayahuasca transformation and healing is the purging, whether it be physical or other ways. I just gave a talk right now where I, you know, told our group that are being introduced to ayahuasca for the first time, about half of the people have participated in ceremonies before and the other half have never had ayahuasca. And tonight they'll have their first ceremony that the purging is natural, but it doesn't have to be uh, concocted. It doesn't have to be specifically physical unless that happens from the ayahuasca but i think to diminish that and to try to limit that aspect of the plant itself is taking something away from the indigenous or traditional practices when you started working with ayahuasca was there a phase where you were going through these ceremonies thinking like oh i've had enough 
I think that's common probably for anybody who, who really trains and practices with the plants. You know, my first 100, 200, maybe even 300 ceremonies, I would have tremendous bouts with fear and doubt about the purpose of the training and what I was really learning and getting from it. And sometimes the purging was so intense, it just felt, you know, overwhelming. And other times the ceremonies were oh, so vibrant and so incredible that it would, you know, give a lot of reason to the experience. But the experiences are really vast when you're training. You know, the idea is to have such a wide range of experiences that you can relate to anybody else's experiences, no matter who they are and and what kind of uh difficulties or needs that they might have from the ceremony itself. And so there were lots of experiences where it seemed either like too much or just an impossibility to actually learn. Even on a couple occasions, I, you know, tried to find another path away from it, but somehow I was always brought back and shown that this really was my path and something that I needed to fully embrace. And I think the doubts and fears about it really started to go away when I really got uh, in depth into the healing nature of the practices and was shown how the healing works and how the positive transformations for people are orchestrated through the ceremonies themselves and witnessing that and being part of it and watching people transform from different kinds of illnesses. Uh, at that time, mostly locals or indigenous people was so important and so impactful that that made me ultimately want to continue in the face of those kinds of fears and doubts. I've only had uh, 20 ceremonies and I feel like I've had enough in the sense that uh, I feel healed enough to heal the rest on my own. Uh, unless something happens in life, you might need it again. But currently I feel like I, I, the rest I can work on with at, on my own. I always listen to Icarus no matter what, but I don't need to drink it. I mean, it's different if you're training to be a shaman or something, you will have to uh, work with it more. But for me, if I would drink another ceremony, it would feel like uh, almost like when you had too much food, it'd be like, the, you know, I would almost feel like uh, tired of it. You know, I don't know if you've had people who felt like this. Sure. I think that that's common, actually. You know, in the Amazon, you come to ayahuasca for very specific purposes. Those purposes can be to explore. They can be personal healing. They can come from trauma, um, anxiety, depression. There's lots of different reasons, PTSD, etc. And I think that the number of ceremonies a person needs to get to that feeling that you're describing is different. You know, I think in the Amazon, you drink typically three times, maybe six times, and you're considered healed from that problem. And it's typically a, a true termination of the issue. And then after that, uh, like you say, you can work it out on your own. You've experienced that acute benefit that the ayahuasca can provide. But otherwise, you know, I think the idea of drinking often and making it part of a spiritual practice is very foreign in the Amazon, unless you are training, like you said, to be an apprentice and ultimately become a shaman. You know, in the Amazon, the only the shamans or, or real practitioners drink ayahuasca as a common practice. The, the guests or the patients don't, and people don't make it into a, a practice for everybody, like a collective communal practice that's done week in, week out, like you see in other kinds of spiritualities. And so I agree that at you know, any time you could get the message, okay, I really have had enough, and uh, 
also, like you said, you could go with that for a period of time and other things could happen. And at that point, it could be, you know, reawakened again and revisited to return to the ayahuasca ceremony for the purpose of working on those issues that are new. Do you know how it happened when they made the transition from the patient not drinking to drinking? I mean, it must have been a first case scenario. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, there were practices where the patient didn't drink at all, and it was just the shamans that drank. You know, so the shamans would drink ayahuasca, the patients would come into the ceremony, the shamans would be under the effects of ayahuasca and perform the healings. And I don't know exactly when in history the, the you know, the, the guest or the patient uh, ultimately started drinking the ayahuasca as well. What we would see in the you know, early days of my practice when there was less Western influence and it was still more just working with locals is that they would only drink ayahuasca under specific cases. It wasn't just every ailment is treated with ayahuasca. And so, uh, you know, people would come from all different reasons, from having lung and bronchial issues. Some would have gastrointestinal issues. Others would have physical injuries that they were looking to heal from. Others would be in a state of recovery from other kinds of illnesses. And the shamans I worked with would go into the forest and make preparations with literally hundreds of different medicinal plants. And ayahuasca was truly reserved for very specific cases of treatment and healings where it was deemed and diagnosed as the appropriate medicine to use. But in our lineage, when that happened, um, the person would drink ayahuasca. Before the Western influence in the Amazon, when they were just indigenous there, uh, if somebody drank ayahuasca for the first time, I wonder if they had a more natural reaction to it, like, oh, okay, that's that's what I expected. Because like as Westerners, the first time you go down and drink, you could have like this... Uh, earth-shattering experience, like, oh, I didn't realize this at all. I mean, do you think the indigenous had, do they also get that? Or do you think because of their culture that they already kind of in that vibe? Yeah, no, absolutely, I do. I think that, um, I think you're, you know, talking about the the different kinds of mythologies and collective understandings of the group itself that that person's coming from. And for the locals, they don't have... Uh, separation in their mindset of the idea of energy and spirit from the plants and their preparations of medicine. And so shamans who are real indigenous healers are in a position and a role where there are no other Western doctors to be able to support their communities. And so they heal uh, everybody in their community or treat everybody in their community from a wide series of ailments and, and difficulties. And there they all share in the same collective mythology. So when they drink ayahuasca, the person has often a first-time experience of actually seeing what had been talked about a lot through their life. So the locals all have a much more grounded and centered idea about the ceremonies and about what's taking place. And that even extends here in the Amazon now with the local mestizo culture that in general they treat ayahuasca in a much more physical way than Westerners. Westerners get really caught up in the the visionary aspects of it 
And uh, the locals don't seem to have such a degree of reverie for that aspect of the experience. They're more interested in the actual cleansing that comes from it. And uh, it seems to be less psychomagical in their take on it and much more physically rooted. So they say like, yeah, I saw a lot of things and it was really amazing how the Icaros came in and the visions changed and then they came came out when you and backed off and then I was more in my thoughts. But really what it did was just really cleanse me. I just got everything out. And that's a very common way of describing the experience. And so I think that that mythology that includes spirit, spirits as part of spirituality and the forest as being alive and being made up of this concept of spirit permeates the totality of the mythology of the people. And so then when they actually have experiences of it, it's it can be very impactful because they are seeing something that they only heard about for the first time, but it's not something that they're hearing about and experiencing for the first time. And I think that changes it dramatically. What do you think? I mean, the positive thing with the popularity of ayahuasca is hopefully it will plant a seed in the west to maybe move in a better direction but uh, could this all turn the wrong way is there any dangers you see yes and no you know i really believe in the overall evolution of the species and the evolution of the planet and i don't think that our our evolution is individualized from the evolution of the planet i see that humans are a very new and young addition to Earth. And society has grown tremendously and we've established a complete you know, dominance of the planet. But the overall evolution I don't see as being dangerous at all. I think ayahuasca gives people a perspective that they didn't have before. I think in the wrong hands it can be used for uh, purposes that are nefarious or dark. Um, but that's really not the purpose of ayahuasca medicine. And from what I see, most people in the West are actually looking for solutions beyond the the capabilities that are, you know, currently being offered as solutions. And so there's no cure for different kinds of mental illnesses in the Western world and in the indigenous communities there are. And so I think that's a, a you know, a real driving force behind it. But I think with anything, it has to have its own set and setting. And it has to be practiced with a level of professionalism from people who really have trained and studied. You know, I think that's really like the, the key benchmark there. The shamans that trained me had participated in thousands of ceremonies by the time they were training me. And they were not really interested in even kind of ranking me or judging me in that sense until I had amassed countless hundreds of ceremonies and then they wanted to look again when I had had a thousand ceremonies. And so I think in the world there's a really big difference between what kind of practitioner you're working with and it's important to think that the shaman is not there as a bartender or just a server of the plant. They have a very big role in the ceremony and what you experience when you're under the influence of ayahuasca. And they should be guiding the ceremony with Icaros. And, you know, I've heard of lots of different kinds of ceremonies out there where people are just putting on CDs of other shamans or they're taking it on their own, or they're inventing the chants themselves. And I think that's really stripping away the real indigenous purpose of the healer and how that healer was part and parcel of the entire healing experience and transformative experience, as well as a layer there to make sure that what happened is really safe and done in a professional nature. And in the Amazon, 
in the indigenous cultures to be considered, you know, a, a really strong practitioner, you can have tremendous skills early on in your practice, but it really does take years. And in many cases, 10 to 15 years to amass enough skill and capacity. And so if you really think about that, you know, that's the equivalent of the most trained people in the Western world in whatever their field is. And so in the Amazon, they have this very long concept of uh, how long an apprenticeship and overall learning uh, trajectory should take place with ayahuasca. And so I think there we do have the question of the quality of the practitioner and then the quality of their their ayahuasca and that both of them need to be, you know, very high quality, very professional very strong capacity at holding space and intention, having the right ikaros for the ceremony. And then that's what really makes it a positive evolutionary tool. One thing you have to come to terms with, I find that is when you've having all these great ceremonies with these maestros and maestros, and then if you spend time with them, you it's very easy to put them on a pedestal. And like, because the experience you had was so intense or so uh, uh, life-changing that the person facilitating it, you can't help to like, you <laughs> know, almost like you could worship it as a god or something. So it's 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 easy thing to fall into. Did you ever have that where you like put them on a pedestal before, and then you see them do something that's like, oh, they're just humans. Like there was one where I was at who actually got drunk and I was like, why Why is he getting drunk? Why would he even need to get drunk? I mean, it was very confusing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really normal. When you have really peak experiences or transcendental experiences in your life and somebody helped facilitate those experiences, it's really easy to assume all sorts of thoughts about them that may or may not be entirely true. You know, I, the shamans themselves that I met called themselves medico vegetalistas, which means uh, plant doctor. They didn't call themselves enlightened. They didn't call themselves even chaman. They said, Westerners call us chaman. You know, that's a word you guys use. We use the word medico vegetalista. And we practice a kind of medicine that's based on the plants. And the plants have spirit. And, you know, right there for me, it was like, wait, the plants have spirit and you can show me that? Wow, you must be amazing. You know, and I was looking for that kind of figure and that kind of person. And I realized over time that the shamans are really much more normal people and really embracing of a normal life than an ascetic or a kind of exalted religious figure. And so I think it's very common for people to do that, but I would warn against that. And if you started to have those kinds of thoughts or feelings, I would say, hey, be really careful there because you're really interacting with a you know, a person who really embraces life, who knows a lot about spirit, who knows a lot about the energy of the forest, knows a ton about the plants. But that doesn't really mean that they deserve or even want that kind of praise from you. You know, I just think like simple respect for the person makes a lot more sense. They've developed a skill that's very important in the culture here and has been beneficial to people from other cultures. But I think a more grounded concept of that aspect of reality is really important. Or I think you're just going to feel uh, let down over time. Like you say, seeing the shaman get drunk and act in a very common and order ordinary way you know, may really burst that bubble. But I think it's important to realize that that's our own bubble, not the shamans. You know, the shamans that I 
uh, worked with, they always told me just to embrace life, embrace having a family, embrace normal experiences, embrace a good party as much as these other kinds of exalted ceremonial experiences. And so they were very much attuned to the local life. And that also included alcohol. For me personally, I just couldn't be in a really intense apprenticeship and during that period of time drink alcohol. It just didn't go together. So I found that every time I ever had any kind of alcoholic beverage, I would end up just throwing it up in the next series of ceremonies, you know, and I could be off on vacation somewhere else in the world or or far away from ayahuasca you know for a week or two during that period of time and uh and then come back and end up just putting it in the bucket and not wanting anything to do with it but like you said i've met many shamans that also participate and drink alcoholic beverages and they consider it totally normal but they must maybe it's too strong a word but they must have some sort of enlightened state because they've drank it so many times. So like you said, they must have some sort of uh, equilibrium in their life. Uh, at least everyone I've met, they all seem very chill. You know, They don't seem to be stressed or suffer from some PTSD or something like that. No, I would agree with you. I mean, I think the beauty of ayahuasca medicine and the practices around it is that they directly treat those kinds of ailments. And so if you're a practitioner working with ayahuasca and you're taking it you know, regularly as part of your practice, because the shamans drink ayahuasca in ceremony alongside the participants. They don't just administer it typically, although, you know, some shamans won't drink in every ceremony, but most of the time they do. And uh, because of that, they also experienced what they call the medicine and the vibrations from the ikaros that they also produce. You know, you can't go to a ceremony and sing ikaros and not be affected by your own ikaros or sit next to another shaman and not be affected by theirs. And so I think that really adds to that chilled equilibrium that you're talking about. And also many of the ideas that could seem very enlightened. I think where we go wrong is thinking that that enlightenment is supposed to extend beyond that of also many expressions of just normalcy. So it's not normal or enlightened. I think they have these experiences that show them a lot more about the world and they have certain expressions of that equilibrium and they certainly know the light. They know it in the form of all different kinds of transformative medicines and uh different psychedelic experiences that they're generating and that they can read real time in the room, you know, so from their visionary state, they know what they're generating and creating in the ceremony. And they also know the impact that it's having on the people that they're singing to. And so I think in those ways that that's, uh, you know, could be considered enlightened. But I think when you, you put the Eastern philosophical concept on it, like a being that has risen to a certain kind of hierarchical position and now has abandoned the expressions of normal life, which could include uh, sex, they could include alcohol, they could include um, you know partying, they could include festivals, whatever. Those things are, are all part of most of the shaman's life. I think it's actually rare to find a shaman who's a real ascetic, except for when they're in dieta or in their apprenticeships. During that time, typically they live a life of deep asceticism. But after a period of time, they come back to embracing a more normal kind of lifestyle. What have you personally come to realize or understand about what it actually is? Because when you're deep in a very powerful experience like beyond the, your own personal problems or 
healing process or even the if you see an anaconda or a jaguar or even or beings beyond that i'm talking about the grand scheme where i us- i usually call it the divine mystery but you know the this massive entity thing whatever you call it some you could say god if you want to use that word but is it the mind or what, what do you think i think the mind is a very recent technology and creation here of earth and that the great mystery the god force the energy the totality whatever we want to call it i think that's just words and we're trying to grasp at the wholeness of universe i think that uh it doesn't matter the words the universal experience for people is common in ayahuasca and you feel attached and connected to something much greater than just ego and the self and you realize that consciousness extends way beyond that of just the isolation of the physical body and when you shed the linguistic separation and ideological separation that we experience in a very egoic daily normal state of thinking then you tap into that force and it makes sense of why people have believed in and called in the form of prayer for help from that force and that that force is truly omnipresent i think one of the really amazing things about ayahuasca is to share with people how that force is not somewhere else it's not on the other side of the universe and it's not independent of earth itself but that earth and people are included in that and that that comes through in the ceremonies and that people can have that experience you know as a kind of joke i used to say that i was a god tour guide because so many people in our ceremonies would uh, awaken to that concept, not the word, but the actual reality behind that concept, the totality of the force of consciousness and its uh, interconnection to life itself and the drive that that has to continue to live and to continue to evolve is palpable and very real in ceremony. And I think it's a true gift to be able to have that experience. Many people say that after ayahuasca, they are not as afraid to die. Um, And I would say that, I wouldn't say I'm afraid to die, but I'm more, after ayahuasca, I would would be more, not concerned, I don't know the word to use, but there is a kind of comfort in dying and nothing happens, it goes black. So that's, so I'm kind of on that side, it's like, oh shit, it continues and... uh, It's so big, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fair. I think both people are, are, I think all people, in your case, I mean, you present a a concept of, you know, all black or continuance. But I think life itself is already whelming, right? It's not overwhelming so much. It can be overwhelming at times, but life is truly full. It's not missing anything. There's no break in time. There's no lapse in it. It's happening, and it's happening as us, to us, all the time. And uh, any notion of what's going on, including death, is serious, you know? And there is comfort in the notion of this kind of whole experience of life coming to a conclusion or, you know, fading to black, like you say, and this idea of continuance and and forever being associated with it can be whelming in its own right. I personally uh, don't claim to know yet what comes beyond uh, life, what we call life. I, I shy away now from both terms, life and death. 
I'm not sure we're alive and I'm not sure what happens when we quote unquote die. You know, I see that we are part and parcel of something much greater than ourselves. And that has continuance regardless of what happens to the self. Is your intention to remain in the Amazon for the remainder of your life? What's your plans for your yourself? You know, I don't have any really. It may seem weird, but I got into this by giving my life to spirit. And once I did that, it broke an egoic veil that I was experiencing. And so in my early 20s, I actually gave my life to spirit very consciously in an egoic state. I was not really interested in trying to live a life of ego in my own self and self-righteousness. And uh, what happened was a spiritual awakening that took me to the Amazon. And I was never told that I would stay in the Amazon forever. I was never told where I was going to go uh, beyond the nature of the training, just that I would train and end up becoming a shaman. And that ended up coming true. But beyond that, I realized that spirit would ultimately guide me everywhere I was going to go and that I would have to face the ramifications or the nature of that. And so I feel like I live in a kind of equilibrium and balance with that calling and that direction. And uh, if I get to stay in the Amazon for as long as I do, whenever I'm here, I feel grateful for it because I absolutely love the jungle and I love the forest and I feel interconnected to all of the plants here and the entire biosphere. But I'm also developing other projects that are involved in blockchain technology and the use of cryptocurrencies and utility tokens, both in the entertainment space, as well as in green and renewable energy and food production spaces. And so I don't know where those projects are going to take me. You know, my first 15 years were really dedicated solely to the healing practices and spirituality. But ultimately, I started to gain a deeper understanding for tech as well as a deeper understanding of the forest itself. And when I looked at the world, I started to think in a way it, it was uh, impossible to reconcile the idea of healing individuals yet letting the planet go extinct. And I saw climate change as being something very real. I saw the power that humans had uh, here of Earth and thought that we needed to do something. We needed to participate in some way to help benefit the, the planet. And so I got really interested in understanding the forest in a new way. And I started a project called One Energy Global designed to investigate in a scientific way based off of the spiritual ayahuasca understandings we have from the forest, how to be able to utilize secondary forests in renewable and sustainable ways to create uh, you know, food production and protein production for human consumption. And then also I was very interested in the notion of the digital space and digital technologies and how digital technologies were almost like built out of uh, shamanic concepts and shamanic ideas. You know, the idea of talking with you across the world connected by basically light is the same way that shamans talked about telepathy. And so I was always interested in how uh, technology worked. And I got involved in entertainment as well over the years in terms of music, trying to bring different elements of the shamanism and the melodies and the transformational effects on consciousness that sound had into other forms of entertainment. And uh, as a company, you know, the business group that I work with and create through, uh, we found all the same difficulties that everyone complains about in those fields. 
And we decided that we wanted to try to make an impact on that as well and develop a blockchain-based platform called Source Independent Entertainment to ultimately facilitate the creation and distribution of digital content and make that easier for content creators globally. My own personal experience, I'm not sure it's been spoken about so much when you read about ayahuasca, but after you go through the you know, major healing bits, you get that out of the way. Um, another thing ayahuasca is very good at is actually to uh, give you entrepreneurial business ideas or creative ideas or that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, I don't think that's been spoken a lot about, but uh, I'm sure you have heard many stories. Absolutely. I think one thing is that ayahuasca helps promote through the ceremonies full brain function. And the Western mind is very analytically oriented or sort of left hemispheric oriented. And the imagination gets awakened in uh, ayahuasca ceremonies. It's just a natural part of the experience. And it doesn't get awakened in like a childlike, cartoonish, believing just in fantasies kind of ways. It gets awakened in a very creative uh, problem-solving, thoughtful nature, and for people who you know know about business and are involved in business, often what comes from it is tremendous expressions of creativity. And I've watched that at our center. I've watched many people over the years come up with incredible ideas uh, while they were here, and ultimately go and implement them in the world. There's an interesting theme where many of myself and many I know that when they come back to the West, they start to do things that are pro-environment, which is quite interesting that everybody gets that kind of message from these plants. Even though, I mean, I'm, I know a guy who worked for an oil company. Nobody said anything to him when he was there. And then later I found out he, he, had, he, he quit and he had wanted to find something else to do because of his experiences you know the plants have a way of talking you know people and who've never experienced these transcendental states of consciousness with the the plants themselves don't have a way to really understand that but the plants really do talk and when you're in ceremony they teach you about the forest and they teach you about life they teach you about the planet, and the shamans are very connected to this idea of Pachamama or Mother Earth and the whole Earth. And, you know, Westerners have been uh, shown a lot about green ideas and green thinking and the impact that we're having on the environment. And so I think there's a, a real interconnection and interrelationship that's forming between the forest itself and what it understands about life and people. And what they understand about life. And when the forest comes and influences that, people typically become uh, more open to that idea of conservation and open to the idea of green and new methods and ways of being able to support people and the earth and business endeavors that ultimately are uh, protective of the earth itself instead of exploitative. It's quite funny, but when I drank ayahuasca the first time, I was actually, I've been vegetarian for a long time, going towards vegan almost, but the ayahuasca actually made me, I'm not either anymore, because I realized that it's all it's all life, and uh, so it's not really, it's, it's, it's not about who you kill, it's more like how. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything dies. 
you know, everything. When I studied the forest, when I started to really look at it, I saw that decomposition was just an important part of the forest as the growth of the forest. And the idea of death is, you know, very scary and and very hard for people to assimilate. But in ayahuasca, you you get shown the idea of of everything growing and everything dying and the nature of that growth and that death really part of a much larger life force that isn't just individualized in my life and my death or the the chicken's life and its death or the fish's life and its death on the contrary i've seen you know the absolute massive amount of of birth and also death that life is constantly creating and i think it's really interesting to move away from the idea of the finality of that and move to an idea of like the the entire group of cells that are the planet of life itself and how there's really trillions upon trillions, maybe even uncountable cells dying all the time and being cell divided and reborn all the time. And that uh, I think that that's a much more fluid way of looking at life and death and seeing that we have to come to understand and also accept the fact that life breeds ultimately death and that from death comes all of the energy and nutrients and necessities to be able to keep creating life. Do you ever feel that when you're doing these ceremonies that because you've done so many that it's just another day at the office like that it becomes a routine or almost boring? <laughs> no, I don't think so in the sense of like uh you know your typical 9 to 5 job. I think the certain difficulties that running the center provide can feel like that. You know, part of my life is the ceremonies themselves, and the other part of my life is to engage in entrepreneurial activities and to continue to develop our center, which in every way is business. And I think that can certainly have a wearing effect. But the ceremonies are so dynamic and fresh every time and different every time that I've actually never experienced that about the ayahuasca ceremony itself as, you know, being boring or something like that. I think if you drink a lot of ayahuasca in a, a continuous period of time, you can come to a, a place of normalcy with it where, you know, you know what's happening. But there's always an experience, which is, you know, like as a metaphor on a highway, the all of a sudden something happening that's almost an emergency or accident, you know, and it keeps you on the edge of your seat and you can get a little adrenaline and, and feel kind of charged from that experience. And so I feel like ayahuasca is like that. Even when you feel like you're in the driver's seat, you know, from your experiences that really anything could could go uh, haywire at any time. And so it really keeps you present there. But I've I've personally found it to be a tremendous honor and great joy to participate in ceremony. It's the place where I experience the most freedom and the most uh, energy to be able to create with and share with others. And the fact that people continuously have really impactful experiences and, you know, awakening transcendental experiences from the ceremonies, I think keeps it fresh. There must be some cases where a shaman who's done thousands of ceremonies suddenly have one when they're like themselves need like assistance or maybe that's impossible if you've done so many. I don't know if they suddenly find themselves like, oh, uh, you know, hold my hand. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
All right, I've been in ceremonies where I've needed Alberto's assistance, and Alberto has been in ceremonies where he needs my assistance. And Julio, who was our you know grandmaster who started training me at the age of 85, uh, would be assisted literally in every ceremony. We would be supporting him as much as he was supporting the rest of the room. But you know, there are times when when we jump up and support each other in the form of giving each other a bentiada where you sing Icaros directly into the body of the person and you shakapa around their body and you help get them going again. There's all different kinds of experiences that can, you know, overwhelm you. And it's also, you know, really nice in those scenarios to have another master shaman there who can help you through that, that experience. So is there like, a, a certain time when you feel like you're finished or is it always working on on it? I mean, to be a shaman. I think you're always working on your practice. Yeah, you're always working on your practice. But I certainly think there's a time where you come to feel like, you know, you've matured in that practice and that, that original, very youthful drive that's really pushing you to grow in a, you know, a really strong, really fast way kind of ebbs away and you come into another plane of the practice, you know, there's there's always a, a continuous accumulation and development of skill that's happening. But certainly there's there are changes and fluctuations throughout the nature of practice. And I think it's different for lots of shamans. I mean, there are some shamans that have just, you know, quit and and just quit for a long time and came back to it, you know, decades later. And some people feel that drive their entire life without ever having a, a large break. You know, Alberto and Julio, they never had a large break in the entire time that I've heard of their practices. And it ended up in my practice after 1,200 ceremonies that I was back in the United States for a number of years and I didn't participate with ayahuasca during those years. And so uh, I think it's different for everybody and you have to embrace that individualized role that you have. But, you know, if you're in the Amazon for like two, three weeks and you do... Uh seven, ten ceremonies, uh, when you get back to society, it takes a while to like uh, get, come back to reality, so to speak, because it almost feels like you came from some magical wonderland. Uh, but if you've been there for years, as you have, and then you come back, did it take a long time to like to get back to the normal modern life? I think integration is really important. You know, I, I you cannot underestimate the power of the ceremonies, even if you just do two or three ceremonies. It's going to change your life like shaking up a snow globe. Like you get energetically completely charged and and you have an uh, opportunity through that to completely evolve your life. And it takes a while to integrate the totality of these experiences. We tell people six months to a year minimum, and sometimes much more than that, depending on the intentions you have from a retreat with us where people participate in just five ceremonies. You know, So they come for five ceremonies, which is actually a, a lot in one uh, short period of time. And then after that, we say, okay, now you have this opportunity to integrate these experiences, continue learning from these experiences, and expect that it's going to last a very long time to have these changes in your life fully manifest and uh, fully integrate and become part of your normal everyday existence. So if people want to visit your 
ceremonies? How would they do that and what can they expect? Oh, to sign up, you go to our website at bluemorphotours.com and you, you know, you go to our retreat page and you can see the available retreats and dates. And uh, we offer here uh, four principal kinds of ceremonies. We have ayahuasca retreats. We have ayahuasca and tree dieta retreats. We have Sanango dieta retreats. And we're also now this year starting to host San Pedro Huachuma retreats at our lodge. And so you find the retreat that you're most interested in that really, you know, is the calling for you and is fulfilling for you. And then you go through a process of a questionnaire and a medical screening to make sure that you're healthy enough and, uh, you know, have the capacity to be able to be in our ceremony safely, which also includes for some people a period of time of coming off other kinds of medications that they're on under their own doctor's supervision. And then uh, assuming that the person you know, has gone through that screening and they really are a good candidate to participate in ayahuasca, then they fly down to Iquitos and they the retreat starts at our office where the entire group is together and we come out to the lodge on a bus and um, then you come to the lodge itself. Uh, there are bungalows here and some really nice amenities to be able to make your experience comfortable. So you have your own room and mosquito net in a bungalow that's shared. And then in the ceremonial house, you know, we have everything set up for you and, and really dialed in to make sure you have the best experience. And then we take you through all different kinds of introductory experiences and talks to make sure that you're prepared for the ceremony. And then throughout the week, we have lectures and talks and activities, including cooking ayahuasca that supports the, the entire transformational experience. So we get you fully oriented and aware of what's going to happen. And then we work with you. It's very individual. It's not just drink this, you know, it's, it's talking with you about how much you need and the right dose for you. And, uh, you know, working together to make sure you get the most out of the experience. Many people try to find places in the West to do this because it's cheaper but uh, what would be the advantage of going to the Amazon to do it? I mean, first of all, I wouldn't put cost as the main decision maker about this. Um, I think anywhere you go, you're going to pay in some way for the experience. It's not free. And um, if you want to have an in-depth experience, I think it's worth investing in that experience. And, you know, I think it's also important to understand that the centers in the Amazon have their prices truly based off of what they're giving you and how much it costs to run their center, you know. And so we're at that kind of upper level of the price range. We're not at the highest, highest. There are people that charge over double what what we charge, but there are also centers that charge a lot less. But I think as a center, they also offer a lot less. And a lot of that may not be seen just to, to your eye when you go there, like whether or not they have a fully stocked medicine cabinet and whether or not they have emergency vehicles or a way to, to get you out if there's an, an emergency not even associated with ayahuasca. You know, do they have the entire nature of their business with the government fully in order? Uh, do they have longstanding employees who have been there for a long time and really know how the center operates? You know, 
Do they have enough people and staff to fully support? Do they have all of the right foods? Have they come up with a, you know, a, a dietary plan for you that's healthy for you while you're also participating with the ayahuasca? Those are all questions and concerns. And I really think of ayahuasca as an investment in yourself. And I think about these kinds of plant spirit medicines as an investment in yourself. I think anybody can go find a trip anywhere. If that's what somebody's looking for, then I can understand that. But I think if you're looking for real change, you need to find real healers that understand what they're doing. And um, you need to find the place that you resonate with the most. And I, like I said, I wouldn't make price the main decision maker there. Obviously, everyone has a nature of their own economy and their own ability to afford certain kinds of experiences. But if it were me, I would save up to be able to have a scenario and participate in a scenario where I had the greatest chance of the very best outcome. And I think, you know, from my own experiences, that comes from being in a location that really understands how to work with you, that knows how to provide a space that you can be safe in and also comfortable. Um, I think it's also very important that you have, you know, an environment that's different to the environment you're used to, but also the kind of amenities that you're used to so that you're you're not so overwhelmed by just the experience of being in the center itself. You know, so for instance, in our ceremonial house, we have flush toilets and showers and sinks. And we have uh, typically for groups of, you know, 27 to 32 people, usually uh, three to five shamans, as well as uh, ceremonial helpers, and usually two to four ceremonial helpers. So, you know, we're looking at, at a staff member for every two to three people in our ceremonies. And, um, you know, I think if you put all of that together, ultimately it costs a little bit more, but then you really get the benefit of why somebody's providing that in the first place. I really think of ayahuasca ceremonies akin to finding a Western medical doctor. You know, say you need a surgery, you don't want to go to the cheapest clinic that isn't hygienic and doesn't have the best surgeons that know how to handle that specific need. And I think if you're in a state of ailment and you're looking for a true transformation and benefit, it's not just a roll of the dice. You want to invest in your own experience and support the people that are also providing that. So uh, say the website again uh, for people. Yeah, our website is bluemorphotours.com. Well, uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on the podcast. I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation and uh, make it work. It was really nice to speak with you, and I love talking about ayahuasca and ayahuasca shamanism. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Go to bluemorphtours.com if you want to check out Hamilton's Lodge. There is nothing better than doing ayahuasca in the Amazon. I know since I did it in Europe once recently and it is certainly not the same. Even if I had Shipibo shamans at my European ceremony, I still missed one important ingredient, the rainforest. The rainforest is an important player in an ayahuasca ceremony, in my opinion. I have a small group of supporters over at Patreon. In fact, the numbers are dwindling a bit for some reason and I... 
spend no time or money on advertising this podcast, so the growth is very slow. <laughs> so if you want to support me with a buck or two, please do so and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. You can also share the podcast in social media and help me promote it that way. I work hard at doing these episodes and I hope there will be some sort of positive karma by trying to avoid having adverts. Basically by trying to remain totally independent. As you know, I always try and use some sort of Icaro at the end of an ayahuasca-focused episode. And this one won't be any different. Let's finish with a song from Yuin Husami's album Yakon Shama. Go to yuinhusami.bandcamp.com to hear more. In this album we get to experience traditional medicine songs, Icaros, that is, set to modern beats. If you haven't heard my episode with Yuin Husami, you can listen to my talk with him all the way back in episode 3. He's changed his name, uh, so it's not called that anymore, but um, historically that was his name back when we did that episode. Now he's called Rhythm of Light. Anyway... Episode 3. Well, that's over 200 episodes ago. Time does fly. The song I'll play is called Icaro de Palo Valodora and it's sung by Maestro Miguel. Next week is going to be all about heresy. Well, I will commit heresy in a way, kind of. See you then. Freedom is in the mind.